Hello, and welcome to the Salem on the Go podcast, a community of Christ followers that seeks the well-being of all people, a place where you can connect, commit, and continue to grow in your faith. In this new teaching series called Resilient Faith, we'll explore what it means to have a resilient faith in the middle of a digital age. Each week, we'll explore what it means to have faith in a world with strange new customs, habits, and gods. So let's turn now to the final part of our series, Faith in Action. Matthew 25 is where I'm going to be this morning. Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 31. We'll be exploring that passage of Scripture. This is the final part of this series called Resilient Faith. Next week, I'm going to start a new series on the book of Philippians, and we'll be working through that epistle together next week. But this is the final part of this series, and we've been in this series. This is now the fifth week, or the sixth week, because there are five principles uh, that we wanted to unpack. We really wanted to look at what it meant to have a faith, and not only a faith, but a resilient faith in the context of a rapidly changing world. And I introduced us along the way to five different ways that you and I can make sure that we have not just a faith, but a resilient faith that we can live into. Uh, that Even though the winds of change may come, we'll still be able to stand firm in the midst of that. Uh, and these are five research-based pr- propositions. They're not original to me, but they're built off the basis of those disciples who actually do have resilient faith. So there's a large group of people, we've, we know this, you've heard this, who are moving away from faith, who, you know, maybe they grew up in the church, but as they age, they move out of the church, uh, and they go on in a different path in life. And a, a lot of research has been focused on that group that leaves, but there's about 10% who not only stay, but have a solid, resilient faith. And so the Barner Research Group decided to look at those 10% and say, well, what, gave them the di- what made the difference in their life? And so each week we've been looking at the five things that made a difference in their life and tried to kind of round that out. And this is a group of people, they studied them for 10 years between the ages of 18 and 29 years of age, and they're not leaving the faith, they're not backing down. In fact, they are in many ways the leaders of the faith. And as they enter this new world, this new, as I've described it, digital Babylon, there's a lot of changes. There's a lot of new customs. There's a lot of new habits. There's a lot of new realities that they're facing, but somehow they're able to sort of navigate through it. And this is how new things are for us, right? Anytime we embrace something that's new or or different in our life, there's both a a feeling of exhilaration and of terror, terror. Right? This, it, it always kind of goes hand in hand. You can experience anything new, a new baby, a new car, a new home, a new job. There's something exhilarating about that, but there's also a hidden terror that go, uh, goes along with it. And we, we bear both of those emotions in the context of embracing new things. And it's certainly true whenever we come into these new areas. But I want you to hear very carefully, just because the world and society is changing around us and we are entering into a brand new era, It doesn't mean that God's not in that new era. There's a lot of things that have changed. There's a lot of reality that's changed. And even though I'm talking about the 10% of 18 to 29-year-olds who decided to stay, there's a lot who have decided to go. And there's a lot of change that occurs in the midst of that. And if we focus on that, it can terrify us to death. It can scare us to death, and we won't even be able to function anymore. But I want to say that even in the midst of all the changes that are happening, God is still real and present and active among us in this world. And he's encouraging us to lead lives of faithful, even if we are in 
an exilic period, even if we live in this digital Babylon where everything is different. Yeah, we can be afraid that relationships are going to look different. People are connecting in new ways, and maybe it's not as good as the old ways, right? We can be afraid that, that, that the information that's out there, we, we can't trust it quite as much anymore, right? We might have those fears. We might not trust the information that's on the internet, or we might not trust the trusted sources because the information on the internet told us not to trust it, right? So we've got this whole vacuum of, of realities that are shifting for us, and that can cause fear to rise up inside of us. But even when that fear comes... We stand firm. Now, I would argue that perhaps one of the biggest fears that I hear all the time is, is what I've labeled the Wally fear. Anybody, anybody seen the movie Wally? Right, we know what this is. So, this is the Wally fear that technology is going to make us lazy. Like in the movie Wally, right? We, we've gotten so advanced in our technology that as we advance in our technology more and more and more, we just become lazier and lazier as human beings. And I would like to think that that's particularly like the case with the digital age, but it's not. In fact, every technological advancement that's ever been made, there have been people who are afraid of the technological advancement because they're afraid that it will make us lazy as human beings. In fact, the ancient Greek philosopher Socrates, right, the father of philosophy, all, everyone knows, he had this fear himself. In fact, he expressed it in a very ironic way, but he thinks that writing itself makes us lazier. As he was talking with, with Phaedrus in his, in his uh, uh, debate there with him, he starts to talk about writing, and here's what he says. He says, writing itself will implant forgetfulness in their souls. They will cease to exercise memory because they rely on that which is written. Calling things to remembrance no longer from within themselves, but by external means. He goes on to suggest in this same writing, he says, this dependency will help you seem wise and intelligent. You will hear, you will read, you will be able to reel off vast amounts of information, but you will not properly know things. Now there's an element of truth of what Socrates was saying here, but there's embedded in his truth a fear. A fear that as we press forward, we will lose something, that we will become lazier in this way. And there's also this giant bit of irony in the midst that you know, I'm reading a document about what he said about writing. So there's all kinds of irony behind this. But every time there is a technological shift, we have these sort of fears rise up, but often in unfounded ways, such as with Socrates. We hold on to the writings of what he said because we have writings. We know what he said years ago about this because of the technological advancement. And at first, we might assume this with technology. But as we look at actual statistics, as we look at actual realities out there, it's not the case that technology is always making us lazier. In fact, I'd like to look back at one group of 18 to 25-year-olds who decided to get together and not only raise a, a bunch of money, they decided to raise $3.3 million. 60,000 18 to 25-year-olds in 2013 Remember, 18 to 25-year-olds who go to mom and dad because they don't have enough money to wash their laundry, right? They come together, and somehow, in one weekend, they raise $3.3 million, not by calling home, but by pulling out of their pocket and investing in something that they think is valuable. In 2013, it was, the, at that time, the largest passion conference in Atlanta. Now, the passion conference has gone on for years and years and years, and their core, at least at the beginning, was to bring together 18 to 25-year-olds so that they can passionately worship God. But somewhere along the line, they, they discovered that 18 to 25-year-olds are not just passionate in the context of singing songs, but they're truly passionate about faith when they have the opportunity to act. 
on their faith. And so that changed. In about 2007, they stopped just bringing people together to sing songs, and they started bringing the people together in order to call them to action, to do something about their faith. And each year they would raise money until they got to that 2013 where there were 60,000 students gathered together or young adults gathered together in the Georgia Dome at that time, and they made the call to end human trafficking. And they said, we together can do this. We together can put some, some walking to our faith. We can put our hand to the plow. We can do something that will transform the world around us. And in one weekend, they pulled together that $3.3 million. Because the technology that they had, the access that they had to not only students who were in that space, but students who were watching online and students around the world, they, man- they managed to pull together the value of technology for action. Not to make them lazier in their faith, but to actually compel them to do something with their faith. And this is what happens constantly over and over in the digital world. Digital, the digital world suggests to us that the most resilient disciples among us are not the ones who are lazy because they look at their screens, but they've discovered that in the context of a digital Babylon, there is still a faith that compels them to action, not to absorption. We're not just absorbing something around us or taking it in, but we're actually acting every single day in our faith. And that's the fifth practice. The fifth practice of a resilient disciple is that a resilient disciple engages in countercultural mission. They see the world with all its customs and habits and functions, and they begin to imagine that it can be different. They begin to imagine that they can work to create something new. And they don't just write about the new world, and they don't just put out a new funny meme about the world. They actually do something to create that different world. And for some of this, this may seem like and look like extremism, but they sort of possess a faith that acts when others remain silent. Resilient disciples have discovered that the key to their faith is always action when the rest of the world is remaining silent around them. They see this world and they move. They live by a conviction that God is already active in the world and that part of our discipleship in the world, if you claim to be a disciple, is that you too will act in the same way that God is acting. You too will take up that mantle in the same way that God is taking up that mantle in the world. And we're invited to be a part of what God is already doing through our service in the world. The Passion Conference is one that tells a different story from the narrative that we often want to assume about this generation and this world. The Barna Research tells us a different story about what we would often assume. And it's a story that we should listen to because it's actually one that comes straight from the heart of Christ. This compulsion towards action is deeply embedded in Scripture. In fact, in the earliest days after Jesus' ascension and departure, the disciples were excited to be the ones who could help usher in the kingdom. This is what Jesus told them they would do. Peter would walk by a beggar, you remember this from Acts, and he would say, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give unto you. Take your mat, stand up, and walk. He wanted to go to people and compel them towards action. Peter, meeting Cornelius and his entire family, would change the script about how Jews would eat with with Gentiles in that environment. James, telling the churches in his religion that pure and undefiled religion before God our Father is this, that you would take care of the orphans and the widows. There's an action behind it, and each of the apostles demonstrate this. The early church demonstrates that they are on mission with God. The early church acted when others remained silent. They moved when others remained silent. They partnered with the disenfranchised of their societies when others would walk away. They went to the diseased-infested locations when others were avoiding them. They rescued orphans off the street when they were left there to die. 
they actually did something in the world. And they did this work in the world because this is the one place, and I want you to hear this, this is what they believed on the inside. They believed that when they went into those places, they saw their Savior. Each one of the disciples had a deep and abiding love for Jesus. They had a deep and unending passion for their Savior, and they wanted to be connected with Him again. And the way that they could be connected with Him again, He told them how to do it, was to look into the face of the disenfranchised, to visit the ones who were in prison, to see those who were around them. And He told them this very clearly at the end of one of His sermons as He was getting ready to go. We refer to this as He talks about the least of these. You'll find me among the least of these. And this passage actually takes place in Matthew 25. It's at the end of a few uh, parables where Jesus is talking about the end of times. And in Matthew chapter 25, as he unpacks this, Jesus says, there's going to be a place where you'll find me. At the end of all things, he says, I'll return and I'm going to gather all the nations before me and I'm going to tell you where you could have found me. And he does this in a pretty simple way. Matthew 25 verse 33, he says he's going to put sheep on his right hand and he's going to put goats on on his left hand. Now, I wouldn't have gone for those two categories. I mean, like unicorns and pegasus might have been cooler, but he went for sheep and goats. I'm not sure why, but he went for sheep and goats as the categories that he would put out there. He separated them off, right? And he's the divine ruler of all things, so he can call them whatever he wants to. But he's, he's looking at these groups, and, and regardless of how the king aligns them, sheep or goats or whatever, he turns first to those who are on his right hand, which we presume as we go through the story are the sheep. And presumably this is the case because, you know, these creatures aren't all that smart, but they are obedient. They will do what, what their uh, leader says to do. And here's what he says as he looks at them. He looks at the sheep on his right and he says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance among you. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. They go on and they inherit the kingdom. They are ushered into heaven. And he doesn't grant them acceptance because their good outweighs the bad. But he goes on and he tells them why he's granting them acceptance in this place. In verse 35, he says, it's really simple. I was hungry. And when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. And when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. And in the midst of being a stranger and a foreigner around you, you invited me into your home. I was in need of clothes, and in that, in that space, you clothed me. I was sick, you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came and you visited me. And this is great news, but, but remember, these aren't the brightest, right? They're not the smartest of the, the group. And so they've got some questions. They're confused. They're like, Jesus, this, I don't understand this. It goes on to say the righteous speak up in that moment, and they said, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you? You left us. I don't know when this would have been that you would have come in this way. When did we ever see you thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you into our home or needing clothes and clothe you? When did you, we see you sick or in prison and go and visit you? I don't remember any of these things. And of course, the king understands their confusion, and so he responds. Truly, I tell you, listen to me carefully. Another translation is, amen, amen, amen. Whatever you did for one of the least of these in our world, one of the least of these brothers and sisters, you did it to me. You met me. 
I was there in that space. I was in that environment. That's where you can actually continue to meet me. You may not have known why you did the things you did, but you still acted in compassion. You may not have understood what was going on in the world, but you responded to that world with mercy. And each time you chose to act in love in this way, you loved me. Each time you expressed your love for your neighbor, you loved me as well. And it's a principle that I've taught time and time again, but I believe that we love God best when we love those who God loves. When we love those around us, when we love those that no one else does, we're not just loving them, but we're choosing in that moment to love God. Because we're loving the things that God loves. We're loving the ones that God's love. We're loving those who God died for. And this parable could not articulate it any clearer. We can find our Savior in this world, present around us, whenever we find ourselves with the least of these. The point could be made there. The parable could have finished there. But Jesus doesn't finish there. He continues on. I mean, we would have gotten the point of the parable very clearly if he would have just stopped there. But Jesus continues because he knows that there's always going to be a tension between the pursuit of a faithful life, between those who know and those who act. Between those who know all the right things to say and all the right things to think, but then those who actually act upon those things. And I don't like, you know, sheep and goats. I told you that already. But Jesus chose them for a reason. While the sheep are generally dumb but obedient, the goats are self-centered, strong-headed know-it-alls. They know how to lead themselves. They know where to go. They know exactly what to do. They don't always know the right things to eat, but that's another point. In the parable, Jesus wants to pit these two against each other. He wants to say that there are those in the faith who will simply go forward and obey the simple commandment to love God and to love others and to act upon that. And there are those always within the religious world who know best, who continue to kind of circle in. And even though they've got all the knowledge in the world... They just don't have the action. And so he turns to them next. And he wants to make sure to address this group. And as he turns to the goats who are on his left, he says, look, I need you to leave. Right? He says, depart from me, you who are cursed, into an eternal fire that's prepared for devil and his angels. Why? Why would he do this? This is insane. What? It's simply that you didn't act. You continued to live a life that was focused on yourself, and the more that you did that, the more you focused in on yourself, your natural end into eternity is yourself. It's separated from God and all of God's existence and all of God's people, and so it's natural that you would move this direction. It's not as if God's standing up in heaven and going, hey, I want to drop you over in this bucket, and I want to drop you over in this bucket. It's that we as human beings have chosen paths in life. And in this particular case, the more that these goats kind of chose that self-centered path in life, they chose a path that would remove them from God and God's creation. And he, de he details exactly what that looks like at the end of all things. And as he goes on, he says, I was hungry, you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, you didn't give me anything to drink. I was a stranger, you didn't welcome me in. I needed clothes, you didn't offer those to me. I was sick in prison, you didn't look after me or come to visit me. You did not act upon your faith that you knew so well. And of course, they're equally confused because they know it all. That doesn't make any sense at all to them as they go through it. And so they say, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or, or stranger needing clothes or sick or in prison? We didn't see any of those things. And he replies back to them, truly, truly, amen, amen. Listen carefully to me. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you didn't do for me. And here is their tragic end. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. 
Their selfish, self-centered knowledge about faith will lead them into that path. The other center, action-oriented faith of the righteous will lead them to eternal life. And this is the space where early Christians found themselves with the risen Lord. This is where they met Him, and they didn't even know it. But they would pursue a life of action. Because it was in those spaces that Jesus had told them in this parable that He would be found. No, it didn't look the same. No, it didn't smell the same. No, it wasn't always the same age or gender. But, but they would find him in those spaces, and so they lived that way. This is where they met him, even though they didn't know him. And I would argue for you and my, me today in the 21st century, this is the space where resilient disciples living in the digital world can still meet him. This is the place where you and I are called. We can be those types of disciples. And if we're going to be resilient disciples, then we have to live in that way. And there's a couple ways that we need to live our lives as we pursue this path. The first way that we're going to have to live if we're going to live an action-oriented faith is to live as courageous, confrontational disciples. This means that we're going to have courageous, confrontational conversations. Right? This reminds me back of some of the pastors and other leaders and faith in, uh, individuals of faith in civil rights conversations where they had to have courageous conversations around the troubles that were in our society. And sometimes it felt confrontational and problematic and hard to have those conversations. But the more they lived into that action-oriented faith, the more willing they were to engage in those confrontational conversations. Nobody wants this, but sometimes this is truly one of the most loving things that we can do for each other is to have those types of conversations about how we are choosing to live our lives of faith in the world. But when we do this, it means at times that safety is going to be an issue. And that's why, and I've I've talked about this too in terms of discerning whether we're uncomfortable or unsafe or those types of things, but living in this action-oriented faith often means that safety should be secondary. It doesn't mean it doesn't have a place in our life, but if you think once again about the earliest of disciples, safety was a secondary reality for them. It wasn't the primary reality. And oftentimes, and I think this is a product of the world that we live in, and particularly the society that we live in that, that is so safe and, and is so, so well guarded, I think that becomes our primary motivation in life. And we forget the stories, story after story after story after story of faithful disciples who laid their safety aside and took up their cross each single day. And in fact, even today, there are those around us. In fact, I've heard stories of parents who were mortified because their child felt this call to be a missionary in a foreign land. And it's never, it's never a question of whether or not God could call them or did call them. The question is always, are they going to be safe? And this was never a question for ancient disciples. Because safety was secondary in these places. The work of the gospel in the world is not always safe. It's not always comfortable. It's not always how that, that cushy reality that we would like. But it is necessary for transformation. You know, of all the stories that I hear of, of, of parents and children and grandchildren, the one that comes up over and over again, it doesn't matter where I've been over the last 20 years, a story that comes up over and over again in our faith is I hear the stories of an older generation who feel like the younger generation doesn't care about faith. Right? We've, we've become that reality that focuses on the 90% to the exclusion of the 10%. And part of the reason that I felt it was so important to do a series like this is because I wanted to remind us of that 10%. It's easy to stand up and focus on the 90%. 
the 90% who've left the faith, the 90% who move away, all those types. It's really easy to do that. And in a season where church attendance and participation is continuing rapidly to decline because of the pandemic around us, many believing that it'll never return to what it was, it's easy to continue to focus on the negative reality. But I want to push us into this, this new space where we focus on the things that have held the most resilient among us in their faith. I hear the stories, in fact, I can remember a story very clearly of a grandparent who just looked at me one time when I visited them at their house, and they said, are all our kids going to leave? Are they all going to leave the church? Is there no place for them anymore? And in that space, I just had to pause and, and remind them that there are lots of spaces where people are showing up. There are lots of spaces where young people are showing up. There are lots of spaces in this world where the gospel continues to go forward. But it does look different. It feels different. It's changed and transformed. And instead of focusing just on what we might be losing, let's pull back in to the places where it is gaining. We tell ourselves things, you know, and, and, and this grandmother in particular said these things to me. I just don't feel like I taught them well enough. I did everything I could. I just don't think I taught them well enough. I don't think I equipped them well enough. I don't think I led them well enough. And if it's true that students and young adults feel disconnected from the church, here's what I would argue. And here's what I had to say that day. Students and young adults oftentimes do feel disconnected from the church. But I don't think it's because we've done a bad job teaching them. I don't think that's the reality. Students and young adults do feel disconnected from the church, but it's not because our content was lacking or information was not there. Here's the hard truth that I had to wrestle with and that I continue to have to put out there. They're disconnected from the church because we've taught them Scripture and information so well, but our actions don't often line up with the information and the Scripture that we've taught. And students look at that. Young adults look at that, and they see that there's a disconnect between the things that we've said and the things that we do. And they're so much further in our faith that they just don't want to tolerate that. They can't deal with that reality anymore. Instead of being a community of disciples who act when others remain silent, what they've discovered is that we become a community who's silent when others around them are acting. And so you know what happens in that moment is that they move to the places where others are acting because they know that their faith compels them to act. Some of you might have seen, well, there's a couple of videos that were very nostalgic that came out. There was one that came out about Blue's Clues, which was not all that nostalgic to me. Some of y'all might have been a little more nostalgic about that, uh, where, where the guy, what's his name, St Steve? I knew, I would look over here at Ansley, she'll help me out, I don't know. You know, he comes on and he gives the whole little spiel about how he's still with his stuff, that's great. Another person, I, and I, I grew up kind of, not grew up, but maybe my teenage and college years watched a little Rhett and Link. Anybody in here even know who they are, Rhett and Link? Yeah, okay, I got, I got an amen in the back. These are YouTube stars. These are YouTube sensations. Now, Rhett and Link were both, were both followers of Christ, but both of them kind of drifted away from their faith. And in an hour-long episode, Rhett one time describes where he was in his journey of faith. And he says such a powerful thing about an hour into this hour and a half talk, 
He starts talking to, he stops talking to Link and he starts talking to the camera that's in front of him and particularly the, the parents that I've been talking about that I've worried about or grandparents or those. And here's what he says. He says, you want to know why young adults are leaving the church today? He says, you let them read the words of Jesus. And they got it. They got it. They recognize that the church doesn't seem to be interested anymore in those words. And so they're not leaving because they don't know the truth. They're leaving because they do know the truth. They're finding a different community to be a part of. It's trying to live into that. And when I heard him say that, I mean, my first gut reaction, that is harsh, right? That's a community of faith that I dedicate my life to. A community of faith that I believe can be the hope of the world and make that that constant transformation. And yet there's another part of me that's like, but it's true. It's true. That if we were to look at the wide swath of the church today, this interest and action and connection and commitment to the world is lost. It's not comfortable to stick our necks out. It's not comfortable to offer that sort of love and support to those around us. It's not comfortable to be in those spaces. Jesus' parable of the end of all things is pretty clear. There are the sheep and there are the goats. There are the knowers, the doers. We get the choice as to what we will be, of where we will see Jesus and how we will live in that. And I said at the beginning of today, I'm certainly very aware of September 11th yesterday, but I'm even more aware of September 12th today. I'm sure many of you who lived through that day remember that was a day where it wasn't about what we knew or didn't know. It was just about how we act. And we acted in unity that day. We acted in compassion that day. As a country, we decided to sort of, you know, lay aside all of our suspicions. Now, they came up later, and they started coming up later, which is pretty natural on the other side of a tragedy. But it's that small window of time right there, just after the tragedy, where our our knowledge was lacking, that our action increased. And I think for all of us, it's in those spaces where we just trust God completely, that we can turn our hands and our feet over to God and allow Him to take it from there. We don't need to know all the answers. We don't need to know how this will change in the future or what will happen. We just need to move, to act. And that's my call to you this week. Where are the places that your faith is compelling you to act if you've not been able to act, that you've not acted? Where are those people in your life that, that are asking you to be there for them? The hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the ones who are disenfranchised by all the systems of our society that are needing you to show up. Because as a person of faith, that's what your faith compels you to do. As a person of faith, that's who you are. As we sing this final song, a song that I love, song that comes straight from scripture there are no other ways that they will know that we are Christian except by our love not by what we believe not by what we say but by our love one for another I want you to be in prayer through this song you can stay seated if you want you can stand if you want whatever's comfortable for you that's fine 
but I want you to seriously enter into a time of prayer and connection with God where you discover the answer to that question right there. Who am I supposed to act in love towards? This is the difference between the sheep and goats. God, we thank you for your word. God, it is an uncomfortable word to hear and read and digest and put into action, but it's one that I know and have seen throughout history has changed the world. God, for the times where we have failed to meet up to that expectation, forgive us and help us, even today, to discern where our faith can move into action. In Christ's name we pray, amen.